Matt, let's talk meditation because we've got a brilliant new app sponsoring. I think it's really important to to kind of highlight what this app does because I've been using it a lot recently and I've really only found meditation in my life to be such an important thing in the last few months and checking in is an important thing to me as you know as we do it on the podcast so on this app you can check in with how you feel in that moment and if you really want to feel motivated in a in a meeting or something get that energy there this app can actually help you get there and i'd highly recommend it it's called the mind detox app you can find it on the app store and google play and you can go and check them out on instagram as well it's called at mind detox app and and i can highly recommend it Hello and welcome to the Naked Professor's podcast. It's just one Naked Professor today. Um, We had an opportunity, well I guess I had an opportunity because Niall Breslin was in town. Uh, Niall's been an inspiration and a hero to me for a long, long time. He's one of the figureheads that I've looked up to. Uh, He lives in Ireland, uh, is a huge, huge believer and advocate and ambassador to mental health. Uh, He's so passionate about it. So we got the chance to go and visit Brezzy in his hotel, central London, and went up and really intimate actually, sat in his room. Uh, It just felt like a very, very casual conversation with a friend, um, except about pretty deep and meaningful things. So yeah, what an opportunity to sit down with a great man, Niall Breslin. So today I am joined by, I'm going to say one of my heroes. When I started this journey, he was leading from the front here and um, I guess kind of behind the scenes, I probably thought to myself, if I sit down and have a conversation with this man, it will be, it will be a bit of a mark of, of how far I've come and, and where I've got to. So today to sit opposite Niall Breslin, known as Brezzy, is a real honour. And, um, and for me, it's a bit of a sign of, of where we've got to because here is a man who leads from the front. This is a man whose passion um, comes steaming out of his body. This is, this is someone who, who, um, who I've looked to for inspiration numerous times. And um, Brezzy, it's, it's a pleasure to opposite you today. No, absolute pleasure to be on here. Thank you. It really is. And um, do you want to say anything or should I jump into something? Um, you, you go for it. This is your <laughs> podcast. Okay, there's something I wanted to do. The, how I wanted to start this is read your words back to you because I listened to something and um, this was so powerful for me. It was, it, was a, it was a speech that you gave to, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce it, but it, the, the Ori, Ori, Ori something committee, an Irish committee. The Oroctus committee. The Oroctus yeah, they're, they're, committee. They're kind of like our, the, the kind of Westminster lads that, that kind of sit in and listen to you but don't do anything about it kind of guys right okay okay well if they didn't do something about this speech then they're never gonna do anything about anything because this was this was unbelievable so they they, they guide the, the irish government on, on legislation yeah is that right yeah yeah so you were there to talk about mental health mm-hmm. and um and this is what you said i'd like to sincerely extend my gratitude for the opportunity to address the committee on helping children in relation to a subject that i am profoundly and unreservedly passionate about the health and emotionally w- emotional well-being of the youth of this country and how we can work together to create a more supportive and sustainable future for children and teenagers. My passion is built upon personal experience, where as a teenager, I simply didn't have the capacity to cope with an utterly dominant anxiety disorder that seemed hell-bent on robbing me of my character and personality at every available opportunity. Crippling insomnia, harrowing panic attacks and incomprehensible self-harm dictated my life all disguised behind a mask of normality to polarise the general lazy stereotypes or label we associate with those with mental health illnesses. The quiet, guy, the quiet guy in the corner, the guy with no friends, the guy who keeps himself to himself, I was none of these things. 
Yet I continuously failed to comprehend why I couldn't breathe some nights, or why my chest constantly felt as if there was a cavity block placed upon it, while that perpetual ruthless nausea became an all too common part of my life. Some days I'd sit in my classroom on the verge of fainting and I hyperventilated and fought for air as my teachers continued to teach the class, oblivious to the fact that one of their students was in the midst of a living nightmare. I spent so many of my school days praying for some of my teachers made talk about this or just say something so that I didn't feel so isolated and terrified. They never did. My greatest support and emotional scuffing came from the fact that I came from a loving and stable family. I used to think that if I didn't have this, what would have happened? I really didn't want to contemplate that. Over many years, my anxiety had so manipulated and sabotaged many careers and relationships like it tends to do. But I count myself lucky that I've always had that inner resilience to defy its grafts. And many years of hostility and conflict with my mind, I've learned to control, respect and even strengthen its capacity to cope. Done through dedication, sacrifice and a complete desire to regain control over an illness that could have been limited or perhaps prevented if I received effective education around what it actually was. It was let to grow into a monster, a monster that fed on silence, fear and a lack of understanding. Mm. I mean, um, that's powerful. And I, I, remember, I remember writing that speech and I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, I wrote that speech in a coffee shop on the way into the... Into the into the parliament because I'd spent kind of nearly two weeks trying to figure out what I was trying to say and everything I wrote down just meant nothing. There was nothing in it. It, it I kind of felt I'm going to tailor this speech to, to suit the environment rather than, you know, use my words to suit so they would listen, even though it was going to make them uncomfortable. Um, and it did make them uncomfortable because I don't think politicians don't care. I just don't think this area is in any way politically expedient. It just doesn't get votes. And until we start changing that, nothing will change in terms of how we treat mental health at the at the systematic level. And to see us, uh, to see politicians who are brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers themselves, uh, they know they know the absolute carnage is caused, um, especially in Ireland, where we have a you know where there's a perception of Irish people as that there were these good time, great crack Charlies. We we have the darkest history of many many countries in the world. We we treated women and children. Our, we not not twenty five years ago, women were slaves in Ireland. They were put if they had children outside wedlock, they were put into prisons essentially. Uh, so we have a big legacy of that that hasn't left us generationally. So there's a lot of us stuff that we have to work through as a, as a as a pe- people. But I do think that particular talk, it, it really did feel like I was I was talking to nobody. Yeah, and I was speaking with my now head of my, he was my um, head of my psychology school, uh, Dr. Paul Dalton. And actually the talk was about inequality. It was about the fact that mental health, the best version of therapy is, in, the best, the best therapy is, uh, sorry, what was it? Inequality, what was it? Inequality is the best form of therapy. No, the, the idea is, geez, am I getting this right at all? That inequality is causing rampant issues in terms of mental health, the first thousand days of a person's life is profound. That's what the actual talk was about, but I kind of decided to put your own slant, put my own little slant on it, uh, and I don't think they expected it. Wow. Mm. So you don't think it was heard? It wasn't heard. Oh. Uh, and I can only talk about what our government have done. Our government spends, of the entire health budget, the entire health budget, our government spends 6% on mental health. Um, in the UK, which is 
pretty poor as well. They spend 14%, which is what the World Health Organization says it should be. We spend six. The majority of that is spent on reactive models. It's not spent on preventative models. It's spent on medication, uh, which is absolutely needed in many cases, but so is the preventative model. So we have an absolute draconian mental health system. We have a draconian mental health act. We have a people that are ready to, to be helped, but they can't get help. So awareness is fantastic. Speaking about it is fantastic, but our systems aren't catching up. Some people need a little bit more than just to talk. Some people need from, from proper structures of support. Um, and that is where our attention is going to now. And how do we build a, a, how do we break down the systematic stigma that we have? Because there's people in first responders like uh, the police, fire officers, all these people. And the stigma is absolutely rampant in first responders and traumatic kind of uh, professions like that until we get rid of that stigma so the societal stigma is going to be really sticky too um and it is eroding um but every now and again there's kind of a curveball thrown in that puts us back a couple of a couple of back a couple of years uh, and that's generally from certain media narratives so what, what I'm what I'm feeling is he's a man who's 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 standing up saying, Hey, I, I I followed the path, you know, I was doing I was doing what I was meant to do, I was actually doing it pretty well, you know, and, and, and I wasn't that guy who sometimes is associated with this. I was doing it all. And um yeah, I, I had problems that were so huge in my life that they could have impact well, they did impact so many facets of my life. No one was there to help me and now this is everything you're doing now is born out of a passion that you went through that and you don't want to see others go through it. Is that fair to say? Well, the big thing for me was uh, what I went through and what a lot of people go through is very, it's very normal. It's mm. not nice. Uh, what it doesn't need is kind of fridge magnet philosophy around. It's a, t- it's a really, un- <laughs> it's a really horrible time. Um, but it's a time a lot of people deal with, especially in a world that is moving too fast for everybody now. We're getting overwhelmed. The big thing for me when I was young uh, and then in the 90s was I didn't have the language to tell people what it was. That was the big problem. I didn't know what it was. I was in the Christian Brother School. I actually, which was a viable option in the 90s, I thought I was possessed by the devil because there was like something living in my stomach. That's what I felt like. I felt like my skin was crawling all the time. And I remember not being able to, one day telling my mother that I thought I had asthma because I couldn't breathe. And it was the only thing I could actually find in a book that described how I was feeling. Um, and... I was told that was puberty, uh, which, you know, puberty is certainly, you can't watch Baywatch with your parents anymore. Things change, things grow, but you can breathe. You can definitely breathe. And that was the thing for me when I got older, that I wanted to help young people have language to describe how they're feeling, what it makes them feel like, so they can communicate with their with their guardians or their parent, and the parents can communicate with them, because that's the key. Uh, if there's somebody there that can provide you with some form of, of support and understanding um, that has a profound difference in how you deal with your mental health. Uh, and that was the thing for me, language, 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 give people the tools to talk about it. Wow. So so do you think you, if you had the language, you would have shared? It's yeah. just you didn't know, you just couldn't explain what it was, or you couldn't put it into language or you just... I would have, I would have. You would have done I, it. And I did share. I, I, on a few occasions, I, I did say things, um, but... I, I I remember trying to say it, and, and it just was coming out absolutely a mess. It, was, it, was not, it made no sense to me. And I'd only ever say it when I was really bad. So I used to go through these waves of really bad anxiety where it would be, I'd be fine for a couple of weeks, and then it would be quite acute, and it would be, 
you know, it could be three, four or five panic attacks a day. It was just carnage. It was, it was, and there were the times that I was trying to speak, but my head was in such a mess at that point that I couldn't, I, I had no clarity. It was, everything was hazy. So uh, the irony was the, I used to play every sport at every level from Gaelic football to hurling to rugby to, to soccer to everything because the only time I could breathe normally was when I was running which is the complete opposite of every biological physiological uh, response that humans have I actually felt normal when I was running uh, and I didn't even like sport that much I just had to do it and I also had to play a sport because if you played sport that mass stayed firmly on your face nobody had a clue that was something wrong um, and that was it. Have you worked out why it helped your breathing? I just, it, uh, the reason it helped my breathing is because I wasn't thinking about breathing. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about uh, how anxious I was. You didn't have time. You know, you're no. playing a, any kind of sport. You literally, if you think too much, you're going to end up broken, broken face or yeah. uh, broken something, especially when you're playing rugby. So you don't have time <laughs> to think like that. But even in training, the problem with me was I was going through so many uh, kind of, like bouts of insomnia that I, I, I wasn't able to train at the level I was needed to train at because I was playing kind of for my county at football and I was playing provincial rugby at that point and I just wasn't able to be at the level physically that I needed to be at because I was I was I was in bits um, um, at this point things like hair, my hair was falling out like in big clumps it would just fall out um, like like every teenager I bat, like my skin would come but it would always get really bad really really bad my, my bouts of anxiety like boils everywhere and so I always believed that uh, and it is now that I've studied it for so many years it is a, as much a physical issue as it is a mental issue and we have to stop putting them on different pages and uh, when the body's under pressure the mind's under pressure and when the mind's under pressure the body's under pressure uh, it's not rocket science no it's, and this is the, actually the frustrating thing is that when you dig into some of this stuff, there's some very basic and easy learnings that could be so easy, sh- easily shared in education that, you know, for, for example, understanding that our brain is going to give us negative thoughts. It is it's trained. It's, it's, its purpose is to keep us safe. It's going to make us look for threats, challenges, difficulties. Now, for that to be first presented to me at the age of 30, having gone through 30 years of thinking, I'm thinking a load of shit. You know, and that's just me, and that's my personality. When actually, the reality is just my mind functioning in a in a in a safe environment. Is, is, how can kids not? Be, you know, of all the things we do learn, how can kids not be told simple philosophies like that? Well, that's evolutionary psychology. So the very basic starting point to tell people is how their brains were designed, and how, as you said, they were designed to keep you alive when there was like lions living outside your house, and you were going out to get an apple, and it worked really well for us. But the issue you have with the negativity bias and which the negativity bias is that obviously that we put more attention on negative things, our brain does, uh, we're overly cautious. And, and that's not, you've done nothing wrong. That's everyone's brain. Everybody on planet has that type of brain because our ancestors had them and it's passed on. But what's happening now is we have, we have a culture and an environment that is manipulating that. And if you go on any platform, um, they actually actively go in on that negativity bias and exploit it. And from a marketing point of view, from a media point of view, they know, you, you, back in the day when my mum used to, she used to get like Women's Own magazine in the 80s, and it was all just kind of, she used to love just sitting there reading it. And it was all just like puzzles and, you know, little tips and things. And now it's like these outrageous, outrageous headlines because what's happened is, and I had this theory that when new media came along, and I'm a big fan of new media and old media, it was the war between the two of them 
that has caused an awful lot of collateral damage because they became unbelievably desperate for figures and attention and numbers and ratings, which is just doing their job. It's their job mm. to keep them open, to keep them, you know, floating, especially old media who, who are up against it. Yeah. So what happened is they became increasingly more desperate and the headlines became more desperate. And what happened to us as people then is we, we had no alternative but to move to a mode of desensitization. We, we, it became too much for us. So we started to desensitize ourselves to these headlines, to these pictures of young babies being picked off beaches, to, you know, who would drown trying to escape missiles that were being sold to them by the West. It's just, you couldn't write this. It's makes, it makes like 1984 by George Orwell look like a Peppa Pig. Mm. We have hit that place. So as humans, we start to desensitize ourselves. And we've done, when we desensitize ourselves, we lose the capacity to uh, have the emotional intelligence to build uh, relationships, all these other things. So there's this huge collateral damage from this war for our attention and this war for, for shock, 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 shock. Let's exploit that negativity bias. And anyone who's listening to this goes, what? Well, I, it's never affected me. It has. Mm. Have you ever been, find yourself down a 400 tread Twitter cesspit tread <laughs> where people are ripping people apart and going, what did I just do there? Yeah. It's not your fault. It's yeah. your brain bringing you down there. But what I teach is, like yourself, is when you teach mindfulness, people go, what is it? It's the capacity to give you the ability to make a choice. So if you're more mindful and more aware of your life, your head, you know, okay, that's my negativity bias trying to pull me down that Twitter cesspit. I'm going to make the active choice now not to do that. So it gives you the ability, but sometimes we're so unaware that we just go. And then 20 minutes later, we're in a ball of stress and we don't know why. Totally. And in my language, what I, the way I put that is that you know, we can either live in our head or, or, or we can connect to our soul's energy. And our soul's energy is, is, is raw. You know, it's, not, it's not listening to the, the programs, the TV shows, the, the advertising. It's not influenced by the negative, negativity bias. It's, it's a far more raw energy of, of much more what I would say is our truth. And, and, our, and our soul craves something very different to our mind while our mind wants safety. Our soul almost wants something entirely different. It wants adventure. It wants creativity. It wants to show up. It doesn't care if you win or lose. All these things that our mind is petrified because if we're creative we might get exposed for failure you know if we lose people might think we're a loser and therefore we're not so safe because we don't have the tribe around us to protect us so this constant conflict and the way that we've evolved like you say is that we've all become very wrapped up in our heads and we've lost touch of our of our soul's energy that brings so much positivity you know our soul fundamentally is, is about love you know, and and our and our head is 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 about putting other people down because it's safer. If they're low, we're higher, and um, we do need to stay safe. Let's, let's 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 remember that we need a roof over our heads. We need to, we need safety, but I think we've got the balance wrong where we, we're wrapped up in the, in that safety space at the expense of connection and love. As cheesy as that sounds, no, it's not cheesy at all. But I think people have different perceptions of what love means. People think love is just going around like care bears hugging people. It's it, love is a different thing. It's relationships. It's the capacity to feel something for somebody that um, makes you feel like life is worth living, um, and that's really important for somebody who's dealing with a very difficult patch in their life because. I don't know if you read uh, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor yeah. Franklin, and he's like an incredible book. And he said, uh, and anyone who hasn't read it really should read it. It's mm-hmm. uh, a book about a doctor who is brought into Auschwitz and said the only way that he will get through this absolute torture is to see hope and things that really no, most people wouldn't see hope, like the stitching and the guard's jacket. Oh, my God, that's beautiful stitching. While he was being beaten up by the, the guard. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you're thinking... 
that's what to me what love is is the the ability to to know that there is amazing things and amazing people on this earth but the reality is when we talk about the negativity bias what becomes really difficult is and as i said my old statistic is always that there's 99 percent of people on this earth are kind and they're loving but we're only ever exposed to the one percent of our souls every day all the time at a rate of knots look at netflix 90 percent of shows are about drug mules like that's not real life. It, yes, it's happened, but the majority of stuff that's happening around this world, this world, isn't people, you know, flying planes across, you know, Miami, jumping, selling billions. Euro. It's we, we're just creating this, and we and people love it. Mm. We're only creating what people want to consume. But I, I just don't see anyone giving us another choice. And when we do give people choices, they t- they call it snowflakey or bullshit. And that's another thing I'd really like to point out. Having that speech being about young people. Um, we lay, we have now labelled an entire generation as snowflakes, the one generation that are going to get rid of the stigma that destroyed mine. And what do we call them? Snowflakes. Stop labelling generations. Because all that does, that just makes it really good for marketing companies so they know how to aim at people and politicians. It's not good for young people to be to labelling them, empower them. And the only groups of people on planet Earth right now showing any leadership, real leadership, are young people. The gun controls in America, climate control, mental health in Ireland. The reason young people are showing leadership is because they're untainted. They only, they, they, they basically decide in two things, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, not who's paying them, what agendas are there, what corporate agendas are there, what, what who's pulling strings there. Whereas politicians, every decision they're, they're, they have to make when it comes to either health, social, everything from economics down, they don't make it generally with the, the will of the people at top of the top of the pecking order. Some countries do, like in Scandinavia, and now you can see what New Zealand's doing. We're starting to push people up. So if every decision was made by our politicians where people were put first, this would be a different world. But they're not. Young people, that's how they operate. So right now I'm, I'm here in, in city centre London. I'd be much more comfortable if there was a, gra- a crowd of 18, big-hearted 18-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds running this country than the absolute who-has that are running it at the moment. And anybody who thinks that 18-year-olds couldn't do a far better job with more heart and more soul than what's happening now are delusional. Uh, and the same in a lot of governments. I think young people are phenomenal and I think we have to empower them. Um, and as adults, I feel I have a responsibility to do what I can to facilitate for that for them in any way possible um, because I certainly don't want to get into politics. Um, I would rather eat my feet. And I think actually what, what you've just touched upon there is something I noticed as a child, as a, as a man growing up, as a boy growing up, very young, all I saw in the world was in the 80s, I saw Arnie, I saw Sylvester Stallone, I saw Terminator Rambo, I saw Muscles, I saw strong, unemotional, although Rambo is emotional, I guess, but, but unemotional fundamentally. Um, they would get the girls, they, would, they, would, they were winners, right? They were the tough guys. That was what I saw as masculinity. Um, and you know, my mum is a nurse. She's very kind and compassionate at heart, and I had that. That didn't feature in in, in my 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 um, perception of, of masculinity. You know, it's like bury that. So for me, it was a case of getting on the mask. You know, but trying to be that that masculine energy, and uh, and that hurts when you put that mask on. Um, but what what I I described you as a hero of mine earlier on because um, what I think is so important now is that I feel there is this shift in energy, that, that we are coming a little bit back into our soul's energy. You know, love, compassion, we're aware that, that, that this is a positive thing. But there still aren't many male role models out there who are very masculine in their energy, like you are, but share from their heart and speak and show them that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to, to, to embrace some of this energy that perhaps isn't perceived as previously perceived as masculine. 
and but still play that role. You know, you are very much a man, you know, um, and show young boys growing up that they can be that. They can be kind, compassionate. That life can be about love. You can tell your mum you love her. You can be kind to your friends. You don't have to be the bully. You know, that's not how you get the lab points. And um, there haven't, there weren't any of those really growing up. I couldn't remember. Maybe there were, but I just didn't know them, wasn't seen them. But we need them. And that's where I feel, you know, you are an inspiration. Well, that was Hollywood, you know. And, and yeah. I, I remember when... <laughs> when I decided to retire from professional rugby uh, and I went to my coach to say I'm retiring every part every cell in my body wished I told him the real reason that I was retiring but I couldn't because I remember the last rugby world cup I used to always say in Ireland and there was like adverts with like athletes coming through brick walls with fire coming out their arses and like like Paul O'Connell hitting a rhinoceros in the halfway line and the Aviva and breaking him into a thousand pieces and we've created that's advertising it's sexy I get it I totally get it I'm you know, we're, we're, it, it'll always be that way. But the reality is, on, at that moment, I wish I looked my coach in the eye and said, I can't cope. And you've made me faster, stronger, more skillful, but nobody has ever sat me down and told me how to deal with this absolute car crash that's going on in my head. Um, and I didn't say any of these things. I just told him I hated rugby. Um, and that was my regret because after that, uh, many people that I knew within my environment rugby under, ended up dying uh, ended up retiring as well. Some people ended up in, in awful, awful places. Um, and that is my only regret, that I didn't kind of pave the way at that point. But that was like 2003 or four, um, And there really was no way of doing it. But for me, the big thing shifted in, in with, with men. In Ireland, if you're a man between the age of like 20, I think 24 and 38, your highest chance of death is suicide. Um, it really breaks it breaks my heart in every way because what what we're not doing enough like we're like I always felt and I, I'm quite hard on myself in a way because we started the charity of Lust for Life and we we thought it would be easier uh, but it's not easy and uh, I feel there's a lot of men now willing to speak but here's the thing we need to be clear here we need to stop turning this into a gender conversation because the reality is I believe I have three sisters who I'm very very close to I think women don't really talk either they'll talk about surface stuff but when you go down to the kind of more layered stuff that can cause an awful lot of the damage they tend to shy away from that too uh, much like men shy away from every conversation generally on it so this, it's important that we don't just talk about I know with the podcast but just masculinity I think it's really important that we, what we've done in this world is we've created such a binary world where there's men, women, left, right, wrong. And that binary world is actually causing an awful lot of this divide, this disenfranchised feeling of you, you, I'm not with you, you're a different, I can't, I can't agree with you. Like, I always looked at, like, I'm very interested in politics and how politics and our society affects our heads and our minds. And this idea, say, with Brexit, everyone going, oh, anyone who voted for Brexit's a racism. No, they're not. And, and that is why we're in this mess. You're now shouting at someone who you disagree with. They might have made a choice you disagree with, but they, you, you cannot assume that you know why they made that choice. In America, it's the same with Trump. An awful lot of America is utterly disenfranchised, and he spoke their language. But th here's why. Because we've created this binary world, he had a market to aim at, and he isolated the other market, and he just went straight at the lad's the disenfranchised um, and that's what happened here too and with the disinformation and with the lies and with the lack of accountability 
we have created a really difficult society for people to be in um, and to function in. And what people are forcing themselves to do, and I totally get it, is I just don't want to talk about this stuff anymore. I, that's where I'm now going for someone who loves politics. But it's important that when it comes to mental health that we, we, we stop, we don't, we, we can start muting ourselves. And what is happening as well is in Ireland over the last six years, we've had two, two massive shifts in our, in our country, huge societal shifts from the marriage equality campaign to repeal the eighth campaign. And the repeal the eighth uh, was uh, whether women has a right to do what they want with their own body, which is a, at this day and age, hilarity that we had to make a, an actual vote on that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they were, they were both passed. Uh, but that created this huge cultural shift in Ireland. Uh, and Ireland was always perceived as slightly backward, conservative, you know, lad, paddies wearing hats, drinking pints, you know, and that was the European. But we are one of the most liberal countries in Europe now. Mm. Sincerely one of the most liberal countries in Europe uh, where, where people are, I'm really proud of our country. And I think what happened over those two campaigns that really affect mental health is we were having all our debates, all our nuanced, important, social, sensitive debates, really important debates that were all being had online. That is not the place for these debates. These debates are so nuanced. They're so sensitive. There's so much layers to it that you, you cannot, you have two options, being in an echo chamber where you're just listening to what you want to hear or you're screaming at somebody else. When it comes to mental health, I'm watching people having these nuanced debates online and it breaks my fucking heart because it's too sensitive and it's too nuanced. This is not the Kardashians here, lads. This is very important stuff from policy to social to individuals. And I really, really, really want to see this debate and this dialogue and this narrative be moved offline um, on, the, on the more important policy stuff. Because it, when, you, when I speak to you now as a, an individual, 7% of what I say you ascribe to my words. The rest is to my body language and tone. Now that I'm sitting in a room with you and I can look you between the eyes, my body language you're starting to notice is quite different. That 93% is completely missing online. So everything, most of the stuff that we read now, we're taking out of context. And we're reacting to what we want to react to, or whatever mood we're in. And in mental health, I advise everybody, don't do that with this particular place. This is, you know, nobody has the answers here. We talk a lot about tools and every guest that we have on shares what tools they have to, to, to live in a modern world, to, to deal with situations. And we have both agree uh, that meditation is a great tool for us. Lots of our guests have come on and talked about how meditation has effectively changed their lives. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't personally do it without a great meditation app. And that's why we are so proud to, to be aligned with our sponsor, the Mind Detox app, because meditation as a tool is used worldwide and is so accessible isn't it yeah meditation is absolutely fundamental for me in getting out of my head and into my heart feeling feeling more and changing that state that i have inside of me by just reconnecting with with my source what really matters to me um we can talk really horribly to ourselves sometimes and it impacts how we feel and meditation and particularly guided meditations on the app are, are a great way for us to get back to a place that serves us well I'd highly recommend it, guys. Go to the App Store or Google Play and check out the Mind Detox app. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I mean, you see it on shows now, um, not to make light of what you've said, but people make shows out of this where they go and find a troll who said something to a celebrity. They bring the celebrity to them. I saw it recently with a boxer. They took the boxer to the bloke and said, you, you said online he was past it and you could take him out in the street. Well, go out in the street now because he's here with you. And suddenly they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know I was joking. It was all, you know, very, and it's, and it's kind of like, well, you know, actually these are words, you know, and, and people are reading this stuff and it's having an impact. You know, if you wouldn't say it in person, why are you chucking this stuff out there? Yeah, and I think that I think we're we we've created as I said we've created a culture an online culture that yes there's many hostile elements to our online culture and our culture in general but there's many really nourishing elements of our culture there's many great things happening there's but I think we should I always I've this this big shift in my life was when I would get that type of tweet or Facebook message from somebody who'd be saying pretty derogatory things, whatever it would be. Did you get a lot of that? Oh, of course you do. You're in public eye. It's part of your job. Some mm-hmm. of it's hilarious. I've learned a new language. Um, <laughs> but one thing I do, and I, I changed it, it was, my, it, was my, um, it was one of my therapists. He, said, he just said, listen, how about changing the anger for empathy? And the first instinct you have is, what is wrong in that person's life that they have to speak to me like that? What's happened in their life? And I hated the first week, second week, but then it started becoming, this is far healthier for me is to actually go, I wonder if that guy is all right. And not even replying and going, you know, the kind of passive-aggressive reply. Just don't get into it. But it's, it's easier said than done. And I will say this, everything hurts. No matter who, be, oh, it doesn't bother me. It does, everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter who you are. When somebody says something that you don't like and it's aimed directly between your eyes, it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um but it work, that works both ways too. The one thing we have to do when it comes to these debates and online, when it comes to mental health, we've created this horrible world where if you say something, if somebody says something wrong or does something wrong, it does not give you a right then to be a racist, to be homophobic, to be whatever. You can't balance off their bollocksy sh- stuff being a bollocks yourself. Yeah. That's not how the world no. works. So if somebody said, does something, and, and watch what happens, somebody says something bad online, somebody famous says something that is derogatory or... Um, recently there's been a few cases where somebody's done stuff and and there's been this feeding frenzy on them and then somebody would call them, you know, something racist or something that homophobic and they think, oh, well, now I can be homophobic because that guy was wrong. You can't. No, that is not the how the world works. Totally. And if you think otherwise, you're a fool. So, yeah, call that stuff out. Mm. You can't balance off someone's mistake by 
throwing another mistake into the equation. Totally. Did you see it recently? I can't, there was some kind of... You've got this whole milkshake thing going on yeah. with the politicians, and there was a... I don't follow politics because I, I'm a bit like you. I, you know, where can it go? Where do I go with it? But... Um, Someone threw a milkshake recently at a guy, yeah. and then there was a woman just screaming in his face, screaming with so much anger. Mm. You know that's not going to help. It. That's not going to help the situation. All that the, all that's happening. Then it got started to get a bit violent. There was mm. it was, and someone you could hear someone in the background going, "No, you're just becoming the same as them now." Is exactly what it is. But what you said earlier about meeting it with compassion. That for me is exactly where we've got, we've got to go. It's understanding that everyone's got a story, you know, and, and what we're seeing from them rather than going, they are a bad person. It's what have they been through? And they're, not and in a patronising way. Not in a patronising but the, the reality is there is some bad people out there. Of course. Uh, very, very few, if I'm being honest, but we, we, we're only ever exposed to those bad people mm. all the time. So we always mm. assume that that's just the way the world rocks. Mm. And it, it really isn't. There's stuff happening today right now that will blow your mind, but we're just not being exposed to it. Mm. Really kind of. I was, when I was walking here, I just saw a guy. It was this random thing, and he was down down to the south bank. And it was like four flights of stairs, and like I walked up the stairs, and I was absolutely wrecked. And this guy saw a woman, and he, with a pram, sprinted down, lifted up the, oh, the nice. thing. But it was, it was such a simple uh, thing to watch. And... Well, two or three other people, and I'd start to think to myself, what, when has r- kindness become a radical act? He was just being kind, and her first thing to him was like, what are you doing? He goes, mm. I'm just helping you at your pram. And she was almost uncomfortable with this guy being kind to her. Yeah. And that's literally all he was doing. Yeah. And I, I always thought, why, how have we created a society where that kind of radical kindness, not even radical, where kindness is radical? Yeah. Um, and, and these are all things we've got to watch in our culture, in when it comes to mental health, in my own mental health, I, you know, like that, that was a huge turning point is, is that I started to understand that one of the things I was doing, which completely defeated the purpose and that actually compounding an awful lot of my problems is I was, what I needed was social interaction. I needed to be with people. I needed to talk to people. I needed to have physical contact with people. And I did the opposite. I absolutely buried myself away. Every time I had any time off, I just buried myself away and I didn't. And I thought, then I, I believed my communication could be made online, but it can't be because there's no emotional intent. There's no bond there. On, and so I, I realized very quickly uh, for my mental health, I had to be around people and I had to be around people that made, that I didn't need, need to talk to and feel comfortable with. Mm. And I have loads of them, them people in my life and I wasn't spending enough time with them. And I kind of just said, yeah, fuck this, I'm... I'm dedicating as much time as I can to these people because when I'm 95 years of age and I'm signing out of this world, I'd like to think I, I, I spent more time with them than the people that were draining me. And um, and, and that's key. I think that's really key to your mental health. Can I share an ex- um, experience I had recently that really underpinned that whole connection thing for me? Is um, I got the chance to speak in a prison uh, recently. Oh, well. And um, uh the major lesson, there were so many lessons in it, but one of the biggest lessons that I came away from is that I spoke with a guy at the end, um, a prisoner. He'd been in for 30 years. <clears throat> he then came out for two years, was doing very well in life, according to society. He had a job. Um, he had a, a car. He said he, he met a girlfriend. His family were like, this is just a dream transition. But he said he felt depressed. Um, he told his brother. His brother said he's being ungrateful. Mm-hmm. Um, and he looked around and no one could understand what he was feeling and he didn't know why he was feeling this. He ended up, I don't know what he did again, but he turned himself back into prison, went back in 
And as he said that to me, I looked around the prison and I saw groups of men mm. in threes and fours having conversation with each other like we're doing now, looking at each other. In prison, there's no distractions. There's no news. There's no TV. There's, no, there's not really much gossip. And there's, mag- there's no magazines, any of that stuff. So what they were doing is sitting around talking to each other about each other. That's the first thing. But not only that, they spoke to each other as, on a level. There wasn't much social hierarchy in there. No one had a better car or a better house. They were all in a cell. They were all in, let's face it, a little bit of a hole in prison. You know, they weren't. That's not necessarily where they chose to be. So they were. They were all on a level, and they were having real interaction. What I saw with this man is that he got his freedom, but without connection. You know, he he had a boss, probably perhaps who was condescending to him. Ex-prisoner, you're lucky to have this job. You're lucky to be here. Do this. And then he came back, spoke to his brother, the one man. Brother did not understand it, wasn't there, couldn't have the conversation. When he's in prison, speaking to these other men, they understood each other. They were all in the same. They understood each other. And what I saw is this man sacrificed his freedom, which is one of our principal luxuries, well, not luxuries, but basic requirements, if you like. He sacrificed his freedom for, for connection again. Yeah. And yeah. That, I was, that was so powerful for me. And But there's so many layers to that too, because when we look, especially young people, that that connection is unfortunately, as I said, now being made online. Yeah. And the the real collateral damage is our emotional intelligence because that's how you build empathy, gratitude, all these key constructs to good psychology uh, from Maslow's hierarchy of needs to, which is still the fundamental spine that I think holds everybody together. But when you don't meet or talk to people or sit with people, you do not get that interaction no matter who you think you are. Um, and I totally understand that. And I even thought, like, I started to go into communities I wouldn't normally have worked with or been with or been around. And I found that amazing as well because it's just, it's, it, it, I, I feed off it. I feed off people's kind of stories, what they've gone through, the collective humanity in it. And, but I, don't get me wrong, we talk about this, you talk about hierarchy. Like, I don't speak about this like I've got this all worked out. I still find myself going to the holes for five days and not con- communicating with people. I still keep making some of the mistakes, but I have full awareness of what I do. I also, very rarely that happens to me. Um, I've spent years in therapy, but I've also spent years uh, in studies in my academic world and kind of really understanding the brain, the mind, how it works, how our psychology works, how our culture works. And it, it's been utterly eye-opening, but that does not mean I'm completely... Um, invincible in terms of I know what's it, I still get caught um, and social media still gets me and the reality is the people that design these apps and products design them knowing that they're addictive and they're addictive as any illegal drug uh, any like the, the way the brain works so there's that's all those stories. There's all the stories of the the, uh, the creators of so many of these products don't let their kids use them. Of course. You know, well, I interviewed the uh, basically head of experimental psychology Professor Spence in um, Oxford and he, 28, he's never had a mobile phone. Mm. Like, and I was like, why? He says, I would literally be the biggest fool knowing what I know about what they do. Um, and I, I, part of me believes that our brains have evolved in a certain way to be able to deal with a, a certain level of information coming at us the way it does. But we know from a neuroscience perspective that it hasn't and it's nowhere near what needs to be to be able to. And our brains cannot do more than one thing at one time, no matter what argument you want to have about multitasking. Men or women can't multitask. <laughs> it is just not how the brains work. But on the, on the phone, what happens is 
I call them weapons of mass distraction. That's what they are now. And that there's a war for your attention. It's a war for my attention. Do you want to win that war? Or do you want some app developer to win that war? Or do you want some social media platform to win that war? And that war has lots and lots of casualties. And most of them are your relationships. Because when you're with people you love, you you got to give them your presence. you got to give them that. That's the fundamental starting point. If you're with them and you're looking over their shoulder or you're checking your phone, you're not giving them that presence. You're not with them. That causes issues to your relationships. Bad relationships causes issues to your head. It's a vicious circle. It all starts with your attention. And, and that to me is why mindfulness was so powerful and awareness. Understand where your head is and make sure it's with the person you love mm. as often as you can. I, it's almost rare these days where I feel like I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky now and I get to have conversations like this, but it's almost rare before I entered in so much into this space where I'd have conversations where I truly felt like someone was really listening. We were really going there. Mm. And it's because there's so many distractions, you know, and it, it's just, I'd rather not have a conversation if someone's gonna look at the phone. Let's not bother doing this. It's fine. Like we're gonna do it somewhere else. But yeah, I'm, I, I'm with you. And it's the thing is, it's, we, we, you know, the brain, we talk about negativity bias. The brain was designed to be easily distracted. Yeah. It, it, it loves distractions, it's you know, fun. pings, loud frequencies, noises. You've, you basically can't ignore them. Mm. And those of you who are like interested in performance and stuff and, and enjoy like whether that is and you look at things like flow state uh, and, and want to get into op- optimal performance if you're an athlete, like the biggest, now the biggest, back when I was playing, the biggest um, issue with uh, being, a, uh, being a professional athlete was injury. Now it's distraction. And I remember, I think it was the, the, the boss of Netflix was asked who was his main competitors. He said, Amazon, uh, Facebook and sleep. Sleep, yeah. <laughs> like, wow. Oh, it's oh, crazy. He's not it? even subtle about it. No. So yeah, I, I, our attention is ours to own if we want to but we'd have to learn how to do it. Totally. Um, now, I really want to talk to you about, um, I, I've sat and listened to you in, in, in an audio, audience, and it's incredible. One of the things that I loved was that I sat there, and you just, it's almost like you just press play. You just talk for an hour. You don't have any notes. You don't have anything. It's just, it flows from your heart. You know, that's all, and, and I was in awe of that. It was amazing. But one of the things that you touched on when you spoke about, um, when, I was, when I was in the audience, was that, when you went to the World Cup with Ireland in the under-20s, um, you, you, you struggled with anxiety. You struggled with that, that speech that I read at the beginning. A lot of that was, was showing up. Um, and you were in a room with, with another guy. And um, eventually your story started coming out. And then eventually you had a, a conversation with this guy in the room where he effectively said, I was experiencing something very similar. Mm. And neither of you obviously ever ever had that conversation now talking for you now is a huge is a huge thing you're an advocate of mm. can we just talk about that whole experience and, and what, what how that panned out and well that whole experience of going to the world cup also taught me something else i always believed that my happiness was in goals and achieving goals so i i decided to i wanted to play the world cup and if i got there everything would be okay a little tip um <laughs> Goals is not where, where it's at. It's important to have them. It's great to have purpose. It's great to have motivation. It's great to aim at something, to have a North Star, but it is not what will define your happiness. Take from somebody who tried a million times. Um, and I thought by making that squad, I would be delighted and proud and my parents would be proud. I wasn't. It actually got worse because then I had to be in a room with somebody for five weeks where I was having panic attacks every night and I was sleeping out in balconies, you know, telling my roommate that I thought the room was too warm. Uh, making up ridiculous excuses uh, because I didn't want him to hear me suffocating. And I played every minute of every game of that World Cup and I came back and I was offered a full-time contract with Leinster. 
Um, I don't know how, because I was, I was, I'd lost about a stone and a half. I was, I was hemorrhaging weight. It was terrible stuff. But about two, about two years after, three years after, two years after I started speaking, the guy I shared a room with, uh, Gary, who's then luckily the soundest, nicest lad I could have been put in the room with, said, could he speak, come and meet me and speak to me? And he said, I read what you said about Sydney. He said, do you know I was going through the exact same thing? And I just got really upset because I could have helped him so much and he could have helped me so much. He was walking around Sydney at four in the morning. I just thought he was nervous. I was sleeping out in the balcony. He just thought I was nervous. We weren't nervous. We were we were chronically anxious. We were chronically uh, really, really, really distressed. Uh, and the support we could have offered each other to get through that would have been profound and would have really changed a lot. So that made me really think that we talk about stigma and we talk about work and we talk. The key here is peer-to-peer support. Uh, yes, it's important to have your professionals and your doctors and your, your therapists and stuff and your teachers. But the ability to have that friend that you can just say, please don't judge me if I tell you something here. Please don't judge me. Please just, and don't you don't need to relate. Please just listen. Just shut your mouth for 10 seconds and let me say something to you. To have somebody who can just look at you in the, between the eye and just put their hand on your shoulder. That is so important. And that particular moment made me realise that. Uh, and we're still, re- me and Gary are still very close now. Mm. Um, we went through something together. But me, I think me and Gary were actually the only players who played every game. Which brings me to another point. People who deal with this are tougher than everybody else. They mm. have to be. Every day can be a challenge. And I'll tell you a lovely story about this that um, really was, that changed a lot for me. I had a friend as well who 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 had a daughter who's really clever intelligent girl but she had really bad social anxiety really quite severe and asked me would I would I meet her so I met her and it was really pretty uh, un- like she was struggling to function and um, but she was in doing exams she was doing her A levels in there and the leaving cert and she wanted to go and study um, medicine believe it or not and the relationship with her father just was breaking down now because he couldn't figure out why she was so anxious. Why has she, why would she be anxious? What has she got to be anxious about? Blah, 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 the usual stuff. And I met him. I said, what I've figured out is that your relationship, what's causing the biggest upset to your daughter is your relationship now because she now thinks you're judging her or you don't understand. He goes, I just can't get my head around it. I went, okay, I'm going to make you get your head around it. One thing I know about you is you will never, to the day you die, get in an airplane. He is petrified of flying. I mean, freakishly fear, like will not get an airplane. And I said to him, right, tomorrow morning, we're getting an airplane. What would happen? He goes, I'd puke, I'd run, I'd vomit, I'd be out of here. I said, cool. But that's like, that's what it's like for your daughter to leave the house. You don't understand why, but it is not your place to. You now can relate to the pain. The difference that made to the relationship. Because your fear of flying is just as irrational as your daughter's fear of leaving the house. Actually, she probably is more of a, reality to, to be to be fearful mm. of leaving the house in this world um, and he, his her relationship and his relationship just got so much stronger because now he looked at his daughter and going you're getting on an airplane every morning you are a rock star you're 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 the most resilient tough I respect you so much and the relationship got stronger because he now was able to relate to how she felt not to why she felt that way I almost feel like you empowered him to have the possibility of compassion for her by making it relevant in his life. Make it, and, and, and also, like he, of course, he adores and loves his daughter. Of course. But it was just, he, he, he was trying every way to understand. And he just goes like, Jesus, just leave the house. It's fine. Look, it's, like, and, and 
by that, she went on and she did really well in her leaving cert, and now she's in college, uh, and she's she's got help, uh, and he's got help. So mm-hmm. it's really important. This is the, this is this is how you got to approach it. You got to make you got to make it digestible for someone who doesn't understand, totally, and give them some kind of playing ground where they can get their head around it. Mm. But I feel like what you 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 know this this whole understanding of compassion for me is so powerful here because. That, that was almost where he was struggling. You know, he, he, he just couldn't get his, his... He was judging her for her behaviour. Effectively, this is what's going on. As soon as you empowered him to have some understanding of, of, of that her behaviour could be related to something else, just like his behaviour could be related to something else, he could suddenly see it in a different way. And as soon as he wasn't judging and he was coming from compassion, I get you, I see you, everything's different. And that compassion, not only for, for other people, but also for ourselves not judging ourselves on the mistakes that we make and, and, and the, the, the problems that we're going through and understanding that everyone does. It does and we're all going to make mistakes. It's going to happen again. Not beating ourselves up. We can start to move forward. And this, this you know, that is, when, when robots take all our jobs in 30 years, <laughs> this is the stuff that we have over the robots. Start learning how to navigate your emotion, your, your compassion, your empathy. Start using them as, as they're, they're literally, they're tools. They work really, really well like from a neuroscience perspective, but also they'll build your relationships. And I think compassion for me started, it's very easy to tell people to be compassionate or be nicer to yourself. It's a hell of a lot harder to do it. Mm. Um, and it, it, takes, it takes a lot more than just you should be more compassionate. Mm. It took me years, years of work mm. to really, truly figure out that. But one way of becoming pa- compassionate for myself was to stop believing achievement was where my happiness lay. Mm. That was crucial because I just kept achieving for the sake of it. And we another design of our brain, the hedonic treadmill, we, we for example, we want to be, I want to be richer. And then you get rich. And then the ego, ego kicks in. Now you want to be richer than that guy. And you're just in this constant Where'd you win? Sta- uh, status chasing, social capital. I want, I, want, I want people to. And by the time you're probably hitting 90 then, you're like, that's all I did for my life. Mm. I chased... I basically let my ego do all the work. And the ego's important. We need an ego. We need to, but if the ego is all-encompassing, then we're moving into narcissism. And the reality is, I believe narcissism is, is the one area um, that, I, I think I call, it, I call a lot of people synthetics narcissists. I don't think they are at all. I think it's a defense mechanism to be able to deal with this world. I don't truly believe they, they have that much compassion for themselves I think they outwardly show this huge level of like narcissism but I don't believe many of them feel it mm. um, and that's that's the kind of breakdown and you look at something like Love, Love actually Love Island um, you know there there's many questions to be asked about these shows um, and it is a slight a slight promotion of this synthetic narcissism that is narcissism is at the the root of sociopathic behavior, uh, psychopathic behavior. Um, and the more we start putting emphasis, I always say uh, compassion's the capacity to believe that you're enough. Narcissism's the capacity to think you're too much. Mm. But I just don't believe mm. people are narcissists. I think they're, no. they're forcing them this outwards kind of, look how amazing I look, mm. because they're deeply, deeply insecure. And, but they don't realize the damage that has, because we're judging, we're judging our lives on the highlight reels of others. Mm. and any human on earth will be jealous will crave that will desire that everybody it's it's like when you look at the Buddhist psychologies um, 
first noble truth of Buddhism, suffering is inevitable, Dukkha. We all go through a grief, stress, relationship issues, everybody. Nobody gets through this world unscathed, no matter who you are. The second noble truth, what causes that suffering is uh, attachment and desire and craving. And they call it the unquenchable thirst. You can simply not honour every craving and desire you have. But young people are just been seeing these beautiful worlds constantly and they're naturally craving it. They're naturally desiring it. And that's just not a thirst they're ever going to... And it's not. that's where an awful lot of their sufferings happen. They think their life's miserable. They think they're not good enough because they see constantly. Back when we were growing up, we did see it very rarely. You saw it when you saw Arnie on TV. Mm. You saw it when you saw, you know, Sylvester Stallone and your heroes. And you, oh my God, this guy's who I want to be. These young people are seeing it mm. every 10 seconds. Mm. It's crazy. Like, mm. and I, I feel for them and I really wish, what well, we have to do something about this. We do. And what do we do? Um, there's many points, I think. I think what what you do and what you're doing and, you know, podcasting is a huge medium now and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a great medium for people to listen to. It's It gives you that context that's missing on some of the clickbait bullshit that we get force fed. So I think podcasting is a really strong platform because, as I said, those sensitive nuanced debates can be held in a better regards uh, and they can be they can be dragged out. And even better than radio, because radio, anytime I've talked about mental health, I can see the producer looking at their watch going, come on, come on, you have three minutes, you have three minutes. Um, so this is a great medium. Uh, I think education systems are crucial, uh, but I also have to be very clear here. It is not our teachers' jobs to do this. If we want to do it, resource teachers, help teachers, they're dealing with serious, serious bullshit. They are, and, and we get angry with them. After the recession, um, we in Ireland, we started getting angry with like gar- like the police and the, t- they didn't cause the recession, lads. And now the people who actually did cause the recession are delighted because you're not angry with them anymore. <laughs> Teachers are essential to a healthy society um, and we've got to resource them and stop giving out that they get three months off holidays. I don't know one teacher who goes home knowing that one person in their classroom is struggling and leaves that at the school gates. It's a very emotive job. Uh, but I think the education system in Ireland, I can only speak about Ireland, is we're still essentially teaching the same subjects I was taught when I was in school in the 90s. You tell me it's not a different world. Uh, we got to teach media literacy. That's crucial. we got to teach young people how the media works uh, to let them know that part of the media and how marketing works is to make you feel kind of shitty about yourself so they can exploit that then and you try to outbuy that shittiness and buy stuff and go, go places and commercialism wins. So that's media literacy, understanding that these shock tack head- headlines are, are out of context. They're just to get your attention. They don't actually probably mean it, what they say. So these are all things young people need to know. They need to know that when ITV thought it was OK to put um, cosmetic surgery ads between Love Island ads when 15 year olds are watching it, that is wrong. That is cynical and it's disgusting. And young people need to be told that. Um, and they need to be told that everywhere you look in the capitalist, liberal, Western world, there's agendas at play. That will never change. It was the same when I grew up, you grew up. It's just the rate of what we're being exposed to now. So make people media literate. These are, these are active things we can do, but create far better systems of support. Create preventative models. Reactive models are expensive to the economy. They're also hugely expensive to the person and their family development preventative models so they don't get to the the place where they have that breakdown where they they can cope anymore and the only time they start to talk about it is when they're actually hitting a fairly dark place 
the minute this stuff comes up, the minute that shit comes up, the minute you've had three days of stress at work and you're a bit overwhelmed, we need to be able to get it out and move and not repress it. Um, and that's the, the key. But we also have to do something here. And I, I really would like to point this out. We need to have some patience. This is a new conversation. And I feel we're trying to rush it. Let's be really kind to each other and figure out how do we develop this conversation and develop it in the right way. Let's not rush it. Let's not push it. Let's not panic here. Excuse the pun. <laughs> um, let's look at ways. But the key to this is a collective response. Not one charity, what not one individual has the answer here. Uh, I'm putting my hand up and I'm saying I want to work and do anything I can with anybody from, you know, I have my own charity, Us for Life, which is an advocacy mental health charity. Um, we work with many other charities. Um, and in the charity space where you have the issue is you're all fighting for funding. We're not. We don't take government funding. You cannot hold the one people to account and then take money off them. So we are we are there hopefully to be the glue that, that can say, let's all go with this together. Um, this is collective, but let's not panic here. Let's not. I always say to even workplaces, oh, we have to do, we have to have a whatever, a mental health program. So it's worse to have a bad one than have none at all. Do it the right way. Don't just throw something on that you read in Google. You would no workplace, for example, and it's great to see workplaces doing it, but no workplace would 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 throw out a really shitty strategy for business development. Mm. Don't throw out a really shitty strategy for mental health and wellness and how how things are work. And it is strategy. It will not happen overnight. It will take it'll take often two three years to start changing cultures within workplaces, and it takes time. If you're a HR manager, stop freaking out. I know it's scary. It's scary to us all, but. Just there's people there willing to help, but don't rush. Do it the right way. Um, and one thing I would advise to workplaces is do do the mental health first aid program. I think there's one here. There's yeah. one in Ireland that's amazing. Yeah, a really great way to teach people how to signpost, how to to, to keep eye out for danger, um, and and really great to give people peace of mind to know that they're doing the right thing and they're saying the right thing. So these are good good things that can be done, and I'm really positive about where it's going. Mm. But. It'll be driven by people. It will not be driven by politics. We have to be clear there. Uh, so anyone listening, you could all be leaders, social leaders, go out and do something, even if it's just three of your mates go for a walk every Wednesday and just talk. That's leadership. Do it. Start it. That could be 20 people in two years' time. Who knows? So people ask me, what can I do? Everybody can do something. And that's what's really exciting about it. Mm. God, I'm so glad I asked you that question because it's oh, there's so many amazing parts to that um it, fundamentally I, I i agree with you it all starts with education it, it really like we can't just leave these people stranded to, to, to fend there's too much for them to to take on now they need they do need education they need help and i, and I really hope that's your talk that you, you that i read out earlier trying to make those those differences is, is incredible and one thing i'd like to add is that we need more people like you because you know you really are fighting and leading the charge you know i said well, you're, you're as you as you are too and i think it's well, i think it's the key to it is is uh, it's important people know <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing mm. I really don't I, I, I it scares the shit out of me like mm. uh, it does I have this like I I've just seen it decimate like genuinely decimate communities families in Ireland um, and I speak I, I very Irish centric because I don't I don't know the landscape here I, I'm guessing it's very similar mm. Uh, we're very similar people yeah. uh, and 
your systems are very similar. Actually, the, to be fair, the NHS is quite is compared to our system, the HSE, which is 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 uh, the best way to describe our system is a human rights violation. Um, <laughs> and I was very well looked after within the NHS when I first looked for help when I was living in London. Uh, very well looked after, very beautifully treated. Uh, and I was treated immediately. Um, in Ireland, I'd be waiting two years for that treatment. Uh, I would also, in Ireland, we don't have 24-hour mental health services. They're Monday, 9 to 5 because depression and suicide only happens office, office hours. Yeah. Really basic stuff that we have at a systematic level that upsets me. We would think called dual diagnosis, where in Ireland you can't be treated for an addiction and a mental health issue at the same time. Which, when the two of them are intrinsically linked, if you're drinking alcohol and you're suicidal, you'll be turned away from, from help. These are really basic stuff that we have. Our Mental Health Act is draconian. Um, so these are fights that we, we believed would be quicker. And they're not being quicker because we put all our energy into shouting at politicians. Number one, politicians don't listen to shouting anymore. Number two, they will not listen to you at all unless they know it will get votes. So anyone listening to this, if you truly give a shit about mental health, vote. And Bill Clinton, when he was going for the second election, his campaign manager said to him, it's the economy, stupid. That's all we vote for. When it comes to a truly, and not everybody, but that's the electorate as a general democracy, we always vote if the economy's doing all right. Now, in Ireland, the economy's doing well. Our growth rate is 3-4%. I have a degree in economics. That means fucking nothing. Because treat a society in a country by one thing, how they treat their most vulnerable. And we, don't, we, we are not doing a good enough job in Ireland. We have the biggest housing crisis we've ever had, the homelessness crisis, the biggest health crisis I've ever seen. There's women dying because of badly read smear tests. There's outrageous breakdown, yet we're, all, we're always told at a political level, unemployment rate is low and then things are going well. Tell that to the mother who can't get help for the 15-year-old daughter who's, who's been in bed for three weeks and she's told it'll take two years. So hmm. these are fundamental things. As people, you have a huge level of power and one of the paradigm shifts that we need to see when it comes to mental health is we have to stop looking at government like they're our bosses. They're, you're their bosses. That is how politics works. I hate using the word power when I talk about government. We give them it. We give it to them. So if you care, vote on it. Vote on mental health. And I understand the economy isn't crucially important, of course, because how do you run good systems if you don't have money? But put people first. Uh, and in this country and in Ireland, we're not doing that. Hmm. Um, now, Brezzy, I've looked at the time and I've got to apologise because you, you, you're, you're late. You're <laughs> late. Um, but well, b- before um, before you go, there's always one question that we ask every, every one of our guests, and that's always just to say, um, what would they say to their to their to their younger self when they're, they're going through their their most challenging times? Now with the, the, the learnings you've got, is there a message you would you would you would share? A message I would share is is <laughs> we are just human, and that you, we're just human. Uh, things hurt. No matter who you are, no matter how, you know how lovely your life is, how good your school is, we all go through horseshit. We all deal with it. Life is not a straight line. And the problem is when we force ourselves to believe it is, our society forces us to believe that we have to be positive all the time and walk around like Care Bears. Hug it. That's not real. It's okay to feel shit. It's okay to feel negative. That is part of this journey. And I think it's, it's, it's understanding... Just, just don't give it the power that we tend to give it, that, that, that mind of ours. And I think the best thing I ever did was to give my mind a name. 
and I call him Jeffrey and I talk to Jeffrey every day. And Jeffrey can be an absolute arsehole and Jeffrey can be an absolute legend all in the same day. That's the way that my head works. Mm. Uh, it's done so much for me. It's tortured me at times. Um, but all in all, I, I, anyone listening to this, the one thing I will say is, is just let yourself be human. That's it. We're not robots. We're not mutants. We're not aliens. We're human. And humans hurt and humans love and humans do all these things. Um, not all at the same time, but maybe they do. <laughs> but yeah, just let yourself be human. There's great freedom in that, isn't there? Mm. It's, quite, it's a liberating it feeling. Be. Mm-hmm. Um, Brezzy, I, you know, I'm lost for words. I really am. You, you're an inspiration. Um, uh, your message is so powerful. Thank you. Please keep sharing. I will, of course. And just thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, Emil. Well, what an honour that was for me. Sit down face to face and have that conversation with Brezzy. He is a man who I've admired for his, his insight and passion around this stuff. And... I hope it shone through. I hope you could feel his passion for mental health, his passion to help people, his passion to make a real difference, to stand up and show what he believes in. Um, so yeah, what a, what an honour. I, I feel like I get these moments in this podcast to have conversations with people that I really, really believe in and, and, and look up to. And, and uh, that was a great, great chance today. So Brezzy, thank you very much for showing up. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Matt will be back next week to join me. So we'll have his Welsh charm to add to my dry whatever it is. And um, I've got to tell you to rate and review and subscribe, of course. If you enjoyed it, please please leave any reviews, that, that um, any, any feedback that comes up. And follow us on Instagram, the Naked Professors underscore podcast. And Twitter, I think, with TMP podcast, but I'm never really too sure. Um, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Brezzy. That was just a beautiful moment for me. Have a good day, everyone. Um, so Matt, meditation has been a big part of our journey. It's about taking control of our thoughts, trying to actually understand why we think, how we do, and, and actually change those thoughts to ser- actually something that serves us better. And we've got an app that helps us with that. Yeah, it's called the Mind Detox app. And I think, f- first and foremost for me, meditation helps me really become more present and in that moment and accept all these things in my mind and, and that was the big process for me is is taking some time out for me and really grounding myself and and I couldn't do it just on my own so I had to find you know I've been through different uh, apps and different processes but I found uh, this one to be a phenomenal help for me and and it helps that I, I know the owner of the app as well Fiona Lamb she's helped me two years ago so it's just a continued continued therapy for me as well and uh, it's called the uh, the mind detox app check it out join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4xe or summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.